Welcome to the Institute of World Politics podcast. IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. To learn more, please visit www.iwp.edu. Good afternoon, everyone, uh, and please continue to go up and get food as this lecture happens. Um, no rush there. Um, thank you for attending our Capitol Hill lecture for the Institute of World Politics. Um, IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. If you're interested in learning more about us, please feel free to speak to one of our staff at the conclusion of this event. Our speaker today is Dr. Frank Marlowe, who is the Dean of Academics at IWP. He formerly served as a professor of strategic studies at the Marine Corps Command and Staff College, and he received his PhD from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy in May 2006. From January 2002 until January 2005, he served as assistant for counterproliferation policy in the office of the Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Policy. He's the author of Cleaning Reagan's War, Conservative Strategy, Strategists, and America's Cold War Victory, and a contributing editor to the book, The Grand Strategy That Won the Cold War, Architecture of China. Please join me in welcoming our speaker. Thank you very much. First, I want to thank Allie and Katie and Will, who's in here, uh, for setting all this up. Uh, I hope you guys enjoy this. I also want to thank you all, of course, for coming. I know this is uh, a big day here on Capitol Hill. I appreciate you finding your time to come and, and hear uh, some thoughts I have. Um, I want to emphasize up front that the goal of this talk is not to give you a detailed account of what current U.S. strategy is, or to tell you what it should be. Okay? Um, well, that's certainly something we could talk about during the Q&A, if you like. Instead, I want to talk about the, the idea of competitive strategy, and how this concept can help us as a nation better understand the strategic situation we're in, and the strategic options we have, with the hope, perhaps, of creating a more sustainable, and balanced uh, strategic approach. But I thought I'd start off, as, as I was thinking about this talk, and I was thinking about what I wanted to say and how I wanted to say it, I was reminded of a, a story from back in the Stone Age when I was a kid. Um, look at all the young faces over here. Um, I, I'm from a big family. I have a younger brother who is two years behind me in school. He, he's huge. Dan is he's about six seven and he's got easily fifty pounds on me, which means he's probably hundred pounds. Um, and and so you know, I tried. So you live in high school, right? And you know I thought I'd try to be a, a good big brother, right? So his uh, his sophomore year was my senior year. He was on the B team, on the standard sophomore uh, level team, and. His coach was a guy named George Mills. And Mr. Mills was a great guy. He was one of my math teachers, and he was as a you know as a basketball coach, he was a really good math teacher. Um, <laughs> he was you know he's a good man, and he was a good man, and he was a good coach for the most part. He taught the guys the fundamentals, he taught them the basics of the game, but it's I think it's safe to say that Mr. Mills was not the most dynamic or aggressive of player of uh, coaches. His defense was was fine, you know, it was pretty pretty standard. Uh, his offense, this was before the shot clock existed, right? So uh, his offense seemed to be based on pass the ball around for about a half hour, uh, hope the defense makes a mistake and gives you an easy shot. That was and so I watched her in many games. It's boring. Um, but there was always a father there, the father of one of the other uh, kids on the team, and he never got excited, he never cheered, he just kind of sat back in the bleachers and kind of given this, and, and uh, every once in a while he would lean back and he'd yell, play to win, George, play to win, right? That's all he ever said. 
couldn't stand the way Jordan was coached, couldn't stand the way he was so unaggressive <coughs> and so passive. Now, why did I just inflict that story on you? Okay, partly to make me look like a human being, but more because I think that's the mindset that our country needs, and it's one that our leadership hasn't had for a very long time. Um, I would suggest for the past 30 years, time and again, this nation has refused to play a win. Instead of being content to coast along, thinking that history was over and the good guys had won. Anybody familiar with Francis Fukuyama's uh, the End of History? Right? Number of you? Okay. This was written at a time, you know, the post post Cold War, and the, the feeling was, you know, we won. Authoritarianism in the First World War, we've beaten fascism and Nazism in the Second World War, we've beaten communism in the, the Cold War, and there was really nothing left. Now, all the all the hard decisions had been made. We all knew that the, the way you you know the way you organize a, a political society now is a democratic form of governance with some level of market economics. That was the solution. Right? So because we figured it all out, history was over. Um, and, you know, Fukuyama was criticized from, from all sides, from both left and the right. But ironically, I suggest, many of the same people who very rightly criticized him and, uh, and attacked his theory, unfortunately, seem to have internalized the mindset. Um, there seems to be this idea, hardwired in the American psyche, that peace and stability are self-sustaining that keeping the peace doesn't really require a whole lot of effort, that peace is sort of the natural order of things, and that history was going to do all of our hard work for us. Right? How many times uh, have we heard leaders, think of the, the former President Obama, how many times did he say something like, so-and-so is on the wrong side of history? So I can think about that for a second. What does that even mean? History, it has no inescapable destination, okay? We've gotten where we are today, not because of destiny, not because of the iron laws of history, but because of choice. We've made choices, and that's why we're <coughs> And I would suggest it will be our strategic choices and the choices of our friends, our allies, and our adversaries that will determine where history will go next. And it is my contention that competitive strategy, understanding competitive strategy, can help us make those choices more wisely. Now, competitive strategy as a concept actually predates, uh, but you start seeing a lot of this discussion in the 50s. But it was really sort of focused on the behavior of firms in the marketplace. Now, it doesn't sort of migrate into the national security field until about the early 1970s. And it owes much of its incorporation into American strategic thought to a man named Andy Marshall. Anybody familiar with Andy Marshall? Okay. Uh, Dr. Marshall was the, the first uh, head of an organization within the Pentagon, a small group called the Office of Net Assessment. Um, he was the founder of that organization and he ran it for over four years. The office was created in 1973, I think, and he retired in 2014, 2015, something like that. So this man ran this office for 40 years. And I would suggest it quickly became one of the most forward-looking and strategically coherent organizations within the U.S. government. Uh, anyone familiar with the offsets, the various offset strategies? The first, second, and third offset. Third offset was sort of kicked off recently. Um, second offset, the idea behind the offset strategy was really um, to help guide the investment of both doctrine and technology to create a competitive advantage. So the second offset would involve things like uh, computerized aerospace. Um, Precision data munitions, CISR operations, so 
enhanced intelligence, enhanced human beings. All the things that are now the staple of modern military operations came about through, in part through the second offset strategies, and Andy Marshall was one of the key developers of that idea. But that said, like I said, there's a lot we could say about Andy Marshall, a lot we could say about the, the, the office and, and so forth, but you're, you're not here for a history lesson. Um, so instead, what I want to do is introduce the four basic strategic approaches uh, within competitive strategy and offer some thoughts about how each of these approaches might factor into a, a long-term U.S. strategy. And I want to emphasize up front that these approaches are not mine. Uh, these are pretty well established within the field of competitive strategy. If you want a, a really good summary of these, these approaches, there's a great book called Competitive Strategies for the 21st Century. Um, the, the chapter from, from Bradford Lee uh, does a great job of summarizing this. But the entire book is worth it. The uh, book is edited by a guy named uh, Thomas Mankin, another very, very bright strategic thinker. Okay. Right, well, the first two of these concepts uh, are called are denial and cost imposition. And they're pretty self-explanatory, right? The strategy of denial it seeks to prevent an adversary from accomplishing its objectives by making it conclude that victory is impossible. Think, for example, of a failed example, say the Maginot Line in France prior to the, the Second World War. Think of containment during the Cold War. Think of nuclear deterrence, right? Nuclear deterrence, in part, is premised on the idea that if you use them against us, we will use them against you. And the damage we will do is so overwhelming that there is no real point, right? There is nothing you can gain by doing that. Cost imposition strategies are similar in, in terms of attempting to influence cost-benefit analysis, but they're rooted in an understanding that most of our adversaries aren't doing nothing, right? They're up to something, they're doing something, and probably why they're adversaries, right? They're usually doing something we don't like, right? And they intend to keep doing it, because it's in their interest, because they, they choose to. So a strategy of cost imposition seeks to believe that. Okay. A great example of this would be guerrilla warfare, right? Much of the intent behind guerrilla warfare is to continue to stay alive, right? To keep the, the fight going and to make the occupying force spend lots and lots of money, lots and lots of time, lots and lots of effort trying to fight you. Okay? You want to believe that. Now, one of the biggest problems with both of these approaches um, is that it can be very difficult to understand how your adversary calculates costs. Anybody here a poker player? Anybody want to be? Uh, okay. What is, you know what it means to be pot committed? Familiar with the idea? Um, Yes, and it's like a, you saying from like myself, like I'm playing poker, am I pot committed to my opponents or am I pot committed to myself? Uh, it is, you're in the middle of a hand. How do you know you're, you're pot committed? Like going all in, like going okay, so all in, like like. There's a there's a mathematical way to calculate it, right? And it, what it comes down to is the expected value of the hand versus the size of the call, right? Uh, if, if somebody if somebody raises, you have to make a decision whether you're going to call or not, right? right? The way you calculate it is you look at the odds of you winning the hand, <coughs> multiply it by the size of the pot, and if the that's your expected value of the hand, right? This is if you got a 50% chance of winning the pot because of the hand you're holding and the pot is the $100 in the pot, 
your expected value of, of the hand is 50 bucks, right? right? If the call is less than that, then you're not pot committed. Um, so, but psychologically, it's, it's more compelling, right? The idea of being pot committed on a psychological level is that you have invested so many of your chips into the pot that you can't fold anymore. You can't back out because you got you know, this is the you got to take a stand on this hand. No matter how lousy the cards you have are, you're basically in a position now where if you want to have any hope of winning the, the overall uh, uh, game. You got to you got to go all in, or either go all in or at least call, because you can't. If you walk away, you've got so few chips left, so little, so few resources left that you might as well just fold. And you might as well just give up. So, you, so you got to go all in or stay in because you got no other real choice. Okay. Is that? Yeah. Um, all right. So countries can get pot committed as well. Countries can put so much prestige, so much, uh, so many resources, so much time, so much effort, so much blood, that they can't pull away. Right? Or to do so is extraordinarily, <coughs> extraordinarily destructive. Think, again, I'll give you a cold oil example. The, the Soviets in Afghanistan, arguably, some might say today, the U.S. in Afghanistan. Right? So much money, so many resources, so many lives poured in that to pull out is extraordinarily painful, extraordinarily disruptive. Okay. After a, so, why did to bring it back to cost imposition and denial? If after a certain point, cost imposition, you'll keep imposing costs, but you're not going to change behavior because countries get pop committed. And they don't care anymore how much it's going to cost them. They're going to keep doing what you don't want them doing. Right? Remember, the idea of cost imposition is you're going to keep they're going to keep doing it, and you're going to keep making them pay. The idea, hopefully, with cost imposition, is that ultimately they stop doing what they're doing. Right? This is going to take them a while. Okay. That doesn't always work because countries get pop committed and they won't back down. Okay. I would, so that's, that's one problem with these kinds of strategies. I'd suggest a bigger problem is that both of them are defensive in nature. They're trying to make someone stop doing something. They are trying to, basically trying to avoid defeat rather than seek victory. Now, they can be used as part of a broader strategy to achieve victory, but in and of themselves, they are defensive. I would suggest to you that history has shown based on that, that strategies based on the other two concepts I'm going to talk about have been more effective and more successful. Uh, because both involve taking the strategic initiative, going on the strategic offensive, and seeking victory. Right, the first of these two more assertive approaches is known as is called attacking an adversary's strategy. Right? What does this mean? Well, the goal of this approach is to get your adversary to take actions that they are either not good at, or even even better, which are counterproductive. Right? So get them to do things to beat themselves. Get them to waste. Keep in mind, I mean, these are based on the, the understanding that resources are finite. Money, time, effort, blood, all of that is limited. Every nation has limits to what they can they can do. So any resource you can get your adversary to invest that is counterproductive is a resource that they can't invest in something that is productive. Okay? So the idea here is to get them put them in in a, a no-win situation. Put them on the horns of a dilemma where the behavior they are taking is is defeating themselves. This can be extremely effective, especially when if you can set it up so that the, the actions they most want to take are exactly the actions you want them to take. How does that work? Well, organizations have, 
preferences. They have interests. Bureaucracies have interests. You guys all know this. Okay. And so if you understand what the interests of the components of a state are, you can, with skill and, and wisdom, you can influence the way those organizations within a state behave. And potentially you can manipulate them to your advantage. Anyone know within, let's use China as an example. Anyone know what the most powerful uh, organization, military branch of in, in China is? It should be pretty easy. I'll give you a hint. There is the People's Liberation Army, the People's Liberation Army Navy, and the People's Liberation Army Air Force. What do you think the most powerful of the three branches there are? Army. All of them are, you know, the fact that they don't even get to be called the People's Liberation Navy, they're the People's Liberation Army Navy, right? So the army is within, within the structure of, of China, within the military of China, that is the most uh, powerful of the, the branches of the military. Okay, so the People's Liberation Army has two major uh, strategic objectives, two major tasks, right? First is to protect the, the nation from an armed invasion, the, the land from armed invasion. And the second is to keep, uh, keep the, the population <coughs> and internal security. Okay. So let's assume we want to find ways of convincing the Chinese government to discourage them from building up a more robust Navy and Air Force, right? Because those are the two that are most concerning to us. If you look at the modernization of the Navy, uh, if you look at the development of advanced fighter aircraft, the, the, of the three branches, it's the Navy and the Air Force that are arguably the most, that, that concern uh, military planners the most in this country. Okay? So, how might you manipulate or influence the Chinese government to, um, so, so if you want the Chinese government leadership to spend more money on the army, which threatens us substantially less, we're not going to land, launch a land invasion of China. Um, so if we want them, but if we want the, the army to steal funding away from the Navy and the Air Force, you might suggest you might float ideas of U.S. military bases along their border. There are reasons to be concerned that they might need to improve, enhance the Army at the expense of the Air Force and the Navy. So if you can get the Army to get upset about the, the amount of money and resources and attention the Navy and the Air Force are getting, you can get them to do your work for you. You can get them to steal funding from the other two branches. That money that they steal doesn't affect us at all. It makes them politically more powerful, and it reduces our threat concerns. That's the kind of thing that attacking an enemy strategy presumably can do, if you do it right. And that's a big game. All right. The fourth and final uh, concept is by far the most ambitious. That's attacking an adversary's political system. Now, I want to say up front, and I'm going to repeat this about six times if I have to. I am not talking about regime change. I am not talking about coup attempts. I am not talking about targeted assassination. I'm not talking about anything. Okay? I don't, I don't love, I actually wish that the, the phrase was influence an adversary's political system rather than attack. It sounds, it, it's more in line with what we're actually talking about but they call it attack, and so I'm going to use that. Um, this type of strategy seeks to influence or manipulate a country's internal factions in order to render the state either ineffective or incapable of interfering with our efforts. These factions could be ethnic, they could be religious, they could be tribal, they could be economic. Every, every society on the planet as groups of one kind or another, as internal tensions of one kind or another. We know that very well from our own, our own country. Right? And I would suggest, sadly, we've been on, 
zero on Gomez. We've been on the receiving end of this for, for at least a decade. At least a decade, if not longer. Well, Russia hacks absolutely, but long before. I mean, it didn't start in 2016. Uh, you, you, go, you can go back easily, easily a decade. You, you see both Russia and China um, trying to exacerbate internal divisions within this country and to marginalize those who are advocating for a harder line against their efforts. Our friends and allies have dealt with it in Europe and elsewhere as well. Ask any of our European allies what the, the Russians and even the Chinese are up to in their own countries. You know, the types of things they're undertaking are startling. Um, we tend to focus just on what's happening here. It's happening everywhere. This is a very effective strategy in one that both Russia and China and a number of others are engaged in. You know, the Russian activities are, of course, well, now well known. Uh, okay. uh, 2016 elections, and again, uh, quite a bit before that. Um, but I would argue that they in many ways pale in comparison to the efforts the Chinese have been pursuing for years now. Anyone familiar with the Confucius Institutes? Yeah. Or back in the day, yeah, like 500 and yeah. Yeah. A lot of them. 500? Yeah. yeah, I didn't realize there was that many. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, there are, my last count I saw was about 108 in this country. And that's just at the university level. There are also so-called Confucius classrooms for the elementary and I think high school level. The last number I saw for that was 500. Okay. Um, these organizations, uh, let's focus just on the ones at the university level. Um, they, while well, they can, they're simply focusing on teaching Chinese language and culture. Um, they have been repeatedly criticized. Uh, numerous studies have, have raised the concerns that they have served as little more than a, a sort of pro-Chinese propaganda. Veiled um, threats about pulling out if certain topics are discussed. Some of these organizations have tried to prevent discussions of Tiananmen Square, or Falun Gong, or the Dalai Lama on campus. They don't do it overtly, but they do it quietly. The pressure, they suggest, well, you know, next year we, we make some these organizations are funded by by the Chinese government. They say, well, you know, money's a little tight this year. We may not be able to uh, to fund that program that we're agreeing to fund for next year. But you know, if that 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 speech gets canceled, maybe you know, maybe we can find a way to make that work. A very subtle coercion takes place all too often. A number of universities have now closed those, those organizations <laughs> because of the concerns that they are not controlled by the university. They have little transparency or insight into how the decisions of these organizations, uh, how they make them. And so uh, there is a, an effort on the part of these organizations and a number of others to stifle any discussion of China as a, anything other than a peaceful, responsible uh, partner. Look at the way, ask a number of Chinese, uh, of Chinese scholars um, are put under tremendous pressure. They want to do field research in China. They have to get a visa for that. If they're writing things that are seen as negative about Chinese government, Chinese system, that visa may not be granted. And so these professors have to decide, well, do I write this article, write what I think, and run the risk of never being allowed back in China to do more research, publish more papers, or do I soft pedal it a little bit? Do I not really focus on the controversial stuff and just stick to the stuff that everybody is kind of safe for? Pressure is tremendous. Look at the, that, you've got concerns about pressuring businesses that want to invest in China. You saw the story 
of the American Airlines, uh, Delta, United, and I guess America, uh, all of whom were forced to change the way they referred to Taipei in their maps because China, they insisted China insisted, for example, that the color of the map for China be the same as the one for Taiwan, indicating they're one country. It used to be, you know, one would be orange, one would be blue. We used to let that kind of thing happen. So there's a tremendous pressure on the airlines to change. That sort of thing goes on routinely. And that sort of influence campaign is arguably an attack on American political system. It is influencing major corporations who have quite a bit of influence in government to change their policies to be more amenable to Beijing's. Now let me suggest some problems with these two later, these last two approaches, uh, attacking the strategy and attacking the political system. Uh, they are extremely challenging to develop. Uh, they require a significant understanding of an adversary culture and its preferred methods of operation. You want to make them do kind of what you want them to do, you got to be pretty good at predicting how they're going to react to a given situation. If you don't, you could like to cause more trouble than it's worth. As a result, this is not an approach that comes easily to Americans. Uh, I would suggest in part because we frequently lack the cultural knowledge to understand our, our adversaries' predispositions and, again, to predict their, their behavior confidently. I would note, however, uh, that we did a pretty good job of this in the U.S., uh, where the, the Reagan administration had a very sophisticated strategy, understanding what the Soviets would do in a number of situations, and created a very impressive and, and very robust strategy that did attack their political system, that did attack viability of the regime and or quite a bit of fruit. So it's possible, but it's not easy. And it's unfortunately all too rare in the American experience. Okay, so you might be thinking at this point, dear God job. Um, or more properly, that this is all fine and good, but what's the practical application of all this? I said these these concepts have applicability, so explain how. Well, uh, let me, I think I've made clear that I think the U.S. needs to go on, take the initiative, go on the strategic offensive. To go back to that basketball story, we need to play to win. If we don't, we're just marking time until we lose. If all you ever do is play defense, eventually the is going to score. If you never, you know, playing soccer, if you never go past midfield, Chances of winning are pretty low. Right? So let me give you a few thoughts about what we need to do to get on the right path. Uh, most of these recommendations, I have to admit, are not easy. And I can't say I'm extraordinarily optimistic that they're possible, but I think they're necessary. Um, I, we are, in my view, way behind where we need to be, and we need. We have some to step up and we need to do it now. We are falling further and further behind, in my view. My first observation, uh, as I said, is that too much of the time we resort to these crude, simplistic, denial and cost imposition strategies. Um, why? Well, I think it's partly because we cling to this idea that if the other guy just stopped misbehaving for a few minutes, they He'd realize the error of his ways and become our friend. Right? Again, this idea that peace and harmony and stability are natural. And so conflict and tension and rivalry is not. And so if we just stopped, just stop and think for a second, take a time out, then they realize all the good things they can benefit from through stability and peace and cooperation, and they, the problem would resolve itself. But I think it's also because we're uncomfortable being seen as aggressive or offensively minded. Um, so instead, we choose to play whack-a-mole. Right? I mean, look at how the press has covered just even the Russian interference in 2016 and the, the Chinese uh, 
influence operation. There's no talk of going after Russia or China for doing this. It's all, all the talk about how do you prevent it from happening again. Pentagon right? uh, apparently has developed a, I read in the, the post the other day, they've developed a, a plan to respond should Russian, the Russians hack electoral systems or databases today. Right? And they have a whole series of been authorized to do it, a number of actions if this happens. But again, that's defensive, that's reactive. Waiting to see if somebody else does something. No, there's no talk in the press, no advocacy. And for all the anger the press has thrown about the rightly about the, the Russian behavior in 2016, I haven't seen any op-ed, any columnist say, "Okay, we need to take gloves off. We need to start doing unto the Russians what they have done unto us." And there's not a lot of stomach for that, despite. The, the, the offense that we took and are continuing to take. <coughs> Second, I would suggest that the current level of social division is making offensive action even harder, which is the whole reason our adversaries are doing it, right? We seem to be caught in a vicious cycle. We have social division, which creates targets of opportunity. Those targets of opportunity invite foreign meddling. That foreign meddling makes the division worse, which makes it harder for this president or any president to take action, which creates more division, which creates more targets of opportunity, which invites more meddling and so on. It's, a, it's, it's, it's perpetuating, and that's why I'm so concerned, in some ways pessimistic, about the way we're moving. There's no one who's talking about reversing this. So I would suggest the only real solution to this problem is leadership. It's leadership in the executive branch. It's leadership here in Congress. It's leadership in the opposition party, whoever that is at any given time. It's leadership in the media, in the private industry. People have to get to the point where they can say, the folks on the other side of the aisle are bad. Okay, fine. I'm fine with them saying that. But Russian. Chinese, the Iranians, the North Koreans, they're worse. So let's stop. That doesn't mean politics have to end. I'm not naive, I'm not foolish. Politics is always going to happen and that's necessary. But the, the way it's being phrased, the way it's being conducted, is not helping anybody. <clears throat> the fact that I don't see much hope in reversing that is in part why I can't say I'm not optimistic. Um, Finally, I point out that the two most effective forms of strategy are the ones I think, as I said, we're worse at. Uh, that needs to change. We need to better understand the key actors in our adversaries' political systems so that we can do a better job of anticipating their response to our efforts. That requires better intelligence, certainly, but it also requires greater cultural awareness on the part of our leaders, elected and otherwise. That's all I have. So thank you, and I'm happy to take any questions you have. Uh, in response to election meddling, if sanctions are an insufficient response, what is a proportional response to what they have? Well, it's not that sanctions are an insufficient response. It's that are they are they being done to the right people, and are they being uh, are they severe enough to actually manipulate behavior? So, I mean, there's a question about the sanctions, right? Are they designed just to punish various important people? That's not necessarily enough. If you want to do sanctions right, if you want to really work on sanctions, let's take Putin's inner circle. Okay, you know, we have this, this myth that Democracies are manipulable because they can go after the public. And, you know, dictatorships have it easy, right? Because they don't have to worry about public elections. They don't have to worry about popular support, anything like that. Not true. Okay? They, don't, they may not have to worry about popular support, but every one of those dictators, whether again, pick your, pick your, pick your favorite one, have 
certain elites they have to keep happy. Putin is kept in power because he made a number of his cronies very, very, very rich. Okay? How well do we understand that inner circle? How well do we know there are rivalries within that inner circle? It has to be. Okay? Somebody's on the in, somebody's on the out. So you want to use sanctions smart. What you do is you go after the people, you target the sanctions so as to sow division <coughs> between the two, between factions within the leadership. Right? You don't just make them unable to access the US banking system. That's that's great. That's not enough. Mess with that. Go and, and, and let some people continue to get stronger and weaken the most powerful supporters. Right? Can you target sanctions against the, the most dedicated pro-Putin people and perhaps even reduce them or encourage those who are maybe more skeptical, more concerned about Putin's approach. That's the way we use sanctions. So economic sanctions may be necessary. And there are other things we can do. Right? We continuing to, to reach out to non-governmental organizations within Russia, continuing to uh, provide, you know, can we provide covert support to some of their opposition, perhaps? Um, that's above my pay grade, and that's certainly not something I can I know anything about, but there are other things we can do. If sanctions are possible, they just have to be more than just a major reaction. And too often in this country, that's what we do. Yeah. I'm not at all convinced that what Russian particularism is not just seizing on already existing political trends and exacerbating as opposed to creating a genuine division. It's very hard to create subdivisions. Um, but it, it's quite easy to exacerbate. So no, I don't disagree that those divisions already exist. Um, but when you are manipulating the, the divisions to an extent that reconciliation between the divisions is becoming harder and harder, then you're, in my view, you're doing enough to justify taking those gloves off. So no, I, mean, I, I understand your point. Um, and certainly there's a risk involved there, and that's frequently why, uh, I didn't mention this, but see frequently why more aggressive uh, strategies are dismissed or sidelined is concern about, well, this could escalate things, right? We don't want to make things worse. If we go after them, then they're going to get even more aggressive after us, and there's going to be this kind of quasi-arms race kind of dynamic going. And my response to that is, yeah, maybe. But if you don't do anything, you're also inviting escalation, right? Uh, weakness is alert. Weakness invites further action. It doesn't discourage it. And so I, I think that, uh, you know, I, I see where you're coming from, but I, I think it's important. Uh, you want to? How does cybersecurity change the rules of national strategy, especially in light that recent cybersecurity attacks are unknown, unnamed, inauthentic behavior that could be routed to foreign threatening actors or could be domestic and we really have no idea? How is cybersecurity really playing all of this? You're absolutely right, it's hard. Um, I'd say we've done a pretty, a pretty good job up till now. <coughs> Certainly, seen a number of indictments on individuals from Russia who are involved in this. There was a great, um, a great study that I'm not even a corporation that uh, sort of a few years back, a cybersecurity corporation that sort of unveiled the, the Chinese army unit that is heavily involved in uh, their cyber attacks and so forth. But you're right, it's hard, and that may, uh, you know, that's where intelligence collection and so forth is 
require. But there's also got to be a certain point where there's enough smoke that even if this single attack was not necessarily done by the Russian government, usually through the Russian mafia or some other association, um, there's enough of them to suggest that uh, common sense tells you that almost And so when you look at they tried to deny the assembly attacks. They tried to deny the Georgia attacks. Um, and common sense tells you at a certain point that, that you should know that. But it, you're right, it is hard. So the strategy is common sense? Well, the strategy is, in all likelihood, none of these none of these cyber attacks are done in isolation. At least this, the cyber campaign that these countries are running is part and parcel of a much broader campaign. And so to some degree, it almost is irrelevant whether a specific cyber attack was spotted through Russia or spotted by private hackers who have had fun, right? We know the, the breadth of the campaign, and we have pretty good knowledge of what they've been doing on a number of fronts, whether it's Facebook coming forward with the bots and so forth, right? So what I'd say is you can't just focus on a specific cyber attack or even cyber operation as a whole. You have to look at the breadth of the campaign. And my argument is the breadth of that campaign, the numerous things, public, private, and so forth, that are on, ongoing, justify the response, quite apart from whether or not a specific cyber operation was a result of the, the, the government or not. Does that make sense? Okay. I'm guessing unsatisfied. All right. That's okay. Although you mentioned specifically your uh, your criticism of the now and constant position strategy seemed to imply a criticism of President Trump's imposition of economic sanctions upon Iran, and you would advocate a more aggressive policy to deal with Iran. I'm not going to. Uh, I won't comment. I, 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 well, uh, what I'd say, I wouldn't necessarily say. Um, let me let me back. Um, I don't know the extent to which the economic sanctions are targeted the way I suggested uh, the ones I, I, I don't have that kind of detailed knowledge of the way who is starting sanctions and so forth. Um, but I think that uh, economic sanctions aimed at the Iranian oil industry uh, is likely to get an awful lot of attention. Um, it's much more than just Right? There's a reason the Iranians are as furious as they are. There's a reason they were imposed in the first place. There's a reason they, went, they came to the table uh, under the Obama administration. It was because those things were hurting and hurting bad. So, but doesn't that imply then that the custom position is an effective strategy that Iran was able to negotiate? I, not, well, I, I said this a little bit, I'm going to reemphasize Cost imposition alone usually isn't effective. Cost imposition as part of a broader campaign can be very, very effective. So, I, what I would suggest is, what else are we doing with regards to Iran to take the offensive? So, and that that I don't, you know, I don't know the ongoing. A lot of this necessarily is stuff that won't make the press, that isn't talked about publicly, and especially when you're dealing with a target like Iran, where our access to it is so limited. And the options we have publicly are so limited that much of what we do with regards to either attacking their political system or attacking their strategy is going to be covert. So you said um, earlier, right, that the cost imposition strategy is, is not it's not favorable if that becomes like <coughs> the broad strategy for competitiveness and foreign policy. Because you know the other, the other three, the last three are like, those are more upfront, up and that's that's better than the defensive strategy. The, the, the first two, right? but could it be argued that like the, the, the U.S. is they have a broad cost imposition strategy and foreign policy, and that's to their disadvantage because there's a long history of the imposition of sanctions on Iran. There, then you had the Russian hacks, right? And, and then Congress followed up by CATSA and a series of 
sanctions there. Now you look at Venezuela and Nicaragua, they're holding their one of their financial two strategies. I was just in a I was just in a Brookings institution event with um, Secretary Bill Marshall Billington and he was stressing the point of using financial tools to um, coerce Maduro to align with our interests, one of which would be sanctions. But then and then now you have Turkey. Is another example of a position of sanctions to coerce Turkey to act that that disrupts their currency in Turkey, among other things. And so you see examples all in many different countries in the Western Hemisphere and other hemisphere, Eastern Hemisphere of US imposition <coughs> of sanctions. These countries are starting to trade with each other. <laughs> yeah. The, the, the gold, the, the gold metal strip mining that happens in Venezuela, who they sell to? They sell to Turkey. Turkey has a joint intelligence deal with Russia. We've already seen how Turkey, Russia, and Iran collaborate with Assad and Syria in the civil war. So it's like this idea of the U.S., if you get position of sanctions, we can block them out of our U.S. financial system. They will, it will freeze up their economy. Like, don't we think that like these countries can collude together and build an economy? China is going to be the front man in terms of financing all of this. You see what China has done in terms of building a robust economy, rebuilding the Silk Road through Europe into Africa. And so, like, what do you, my point is like, and for my opinion, that cost imposition strategies becoming the big strategy, and there isn't like more creative. Creative ideas coming to coming to Capitol Hill. Well, I agree. Um, there is a tendency in this country, um, perhaps because of our own sort of the business of America's business kind of approach, the the knee jerk reaction whenever something bad happens is to impose economic sanctions. Right. right. That's sort of the standard response. It's you know the first thing that will make it up to the president. And we have a number of legislative capabilities he has that, that he can do that relatively quickly and sort of on his own authority. Um, so yeah, there's a tendency for us to assume that's the, the first thing we do. Mm -hmm. And that is unfortunately sort of, again, one of those things that's kind of hardwired into the, the American mindset. Um, and so I would agree with you. And that's why, another reason why, you have to do more than just impose costs. Right. Um, that might be, a, sometimes that's the best you can do. Right? Sometimes you got to buy time, and so you got to play defense for a while until you can marshal the resources and create the plan and get the everything lined up to go on. Right. But uh, I agree with you. Right? It's absolutely wrong. And the economic sanctions tend over time to warp the way trade is, to simply reroute trade to other areas and reroute money to other areas. Now, there's still value. Um, not being able to trade dollar denominated. Debt, use dollar denominated assets, it's a pretty big deal for some of these countries. So China can't necessarily solve <coughs> that, that problem. And so even, even that debt, yeah. well, and potentially a long time. Uh, I'm not sure I would ever want to buy anything that's backed in, 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 through the good faith and credit of the Chinese government. Right. Their, their use of currency manipulation and the like would give me no confidence as that my assets are going to retain the value that I think they're going to be. Um, do you think that we're too entangled with trade with China to really strategize aggressively against them? That's a good question. That's a good question. Um, it is a good question. Um, hopefully the answer is um, uh, I think it's, short answer, no. Uh, I don't think that the presence or existence of a robust trade network, trade relationship, will necessarily prevent uh, hostilities of any kind. Uh, and you, know, you can use a historical example of, of who was Britain's greatest trading partner prior to the First World War. Didn't necessarily prevent anything. I mean, now you 
make an argument that modern globalized society, trade networks, so forth, are more important than they were back then, and that's probably true. But I think that the the potential to use trade, the belief that trade will prevent this from happening hasn't held up so far. It hasn't prevented the Chinese from doing some pretty aggressive uh, actions. And so if it's not preventing them from doing it, then why would it prevent us? I, I'm not sure I could see a justification for that. Um, and, they've been do and again, they're doing that they're doing that in, in Europe and elsewhere. There is no sense that they value the trade as much as they value the advantage that they're seeing. And this is consistent with much of their economic behavior. Right? Much of their investment abroad is driven less by turning profit. In fact, it frequently loses money, but is designed to create political advantages and geostrategic advantages that they're willing to pay an awful lot for in terms of losing money for these state-run corporations. And so I don't think that that the danger of losing access to our trading markets is really a huge, it's only a concern for them, but it will not prevent them from taking the actions they want to. So it shouldn't prevent us as well. They're banking on the dollar falling. I said they're banking on the dollar falling. That's okay. Because if the dollar falls, then well, unfortunately, the dollar falls. They, the dollar amount of assets are quite, quite. Uh, but, they are they, but they have majority of our debt. That's fine. The, the, the value of that debt just dropped. So, uh, the same way they, they want to dump the, the debt on the open market. That's fine. But we, they're going to have to take a huge loss for it, and there are a lot of people who will buy that debt. They, you know, they, they want to sell it for fifty cents on the dollar. A lot of people will buy it capitally because they're going to they're going to make awful So yes, there's some concerns about the Chinese debt holdings. Um, I think they need to be balanced by a recognition of how very very painful that would be for the Chinese um, and how dangerous that would be to their long-term perception in the global community. That's a that's a declaration of war, not of, of, of economic war, not just against the United States. But against everybody who's relying on the United States for their, their trade. And that's a, a very, 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 very dangerous step for them to take. But it's certainly one they've got to worry about. I'm not wanting to enjoy the U.S. government that is all that. It is. Now, that, that said, they own, they own quite a bit. And again, dumping that, that debt would certainly have some significant economic. But um, you're right, most of it is held by uh, investment funds, uh, private individuals. Are you concerned at all uh, that providing support to NGOs and other organizations and civil society in some of these countries would provide political fodder for leaders to consolidate their power and thereby counter our efforts to, to advance our interests? That would be, it is a concern. Um, again, though, they're already doing that. Uh, you have, you know, the, the, the horrible uh, thing that the Russians have done in terms of adoptions, right? Um, cutting off adoptions of kids who desperately need uh, homes, purely out because they're playing with zero. I, I, the, the paranoia is almost uh, unbelievable, right? The notion that the CIA is behind the adoption of Russian babies so that to depopulate the I mean, it, 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 it might make sense to the, an uneducated Russian who, unfortunately, there are too many of them. But, and it may play to a very standard Russian stereotypical behavior. But they're going to accuse you of that whether you do it or not. Um, and so, and that not necessarily, you know, we have a National Endowment for Democracy, for example, which is over. We're not talking about. CIA dropping you know, bundles of cash, but open, overt saying, look, we're trying to create civil society. We're enhancing labor rights. We're enhancing uh, free market uh, economics. Or, I mean, that sort of stuff. And again, this is where non-governmental folks in this country need 
to be more engaged. The, you know, all these huge foundations that are doing good work all over the world, having them step up and do some of this would be tremendously valuable. Okay, I'm getting the hook. Uh, thank you very much. And I'm here afterwards if you want to ask any other questions. Thanks.